Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner. And today we want to continue our discussion in terms of airway management, and we want to move into the idea of complications that can arise in the airway. So what are some common airway complications or maybe not so common airway complications that we can see? And what are the things that we're going to be doing to A, prevent those from occurring? And then B, if they do occur, what are the strategies that we're going to use to reduce the risk of any complications, uh, lasting complications developed from these? So the four that we want to talk about today are going to be a laryngospasm, an airway fire, recurrent laryngeal nerve damage, and then pulmonary aspiration. And while there are uh, a lot more complications that can arise, these are the main four that we really want to talk about. Again, like I said, some are more common than others, uh, but we really want to discuss the preventative nature of what we can do to limit the risk of these, as well as what we can do to treat it if it does arise. So Tanner, do you want to start us off? Uh, Let's start with laryngospasm. Laryngospasm is something that I think as a new student in the OR, this was like the first thing that you were taught about the the scary laryngospasm. This is going to happen to you one way or another. And so you need to be prepared for it. And, you know, classic stage two, you're going to have this spasm. You need to know what to, you know, how to manage it. And starting out, I thought this was like a sentinel event thing that you were going to just see and then you're going to recognize it. And it was just going to be this big ordeal. And as you practice more and more, you realize that you probably have a lot of people trying to spasm on you that uh, it's just part of like your everyday thing, how you're going to manage it. But it's still important here to walk through the different pathways, what causes it, how we're going to manage it, how we can avoid it. And so that's what we want to do here on this discussion. So it's involuntary reflex that causes the laryngeal muscles to contract the reflex is going to be stimulated on the afferent side by the internal branch of the superior laryngeal nerve. If you remember from our last talk, we talked about the difference between the internal and external branch. Remember, internal is going to be sensory. I think of it as inside. It is where your feelings are inside internal branch that is going to be the afferent pathway of this reflex. The efferent signal is going to be sent out by the external branch of the SLN and the recurrent laryngeal nerve. Uh, So this is going to be both the SLN, remember external, that's going to be your motor, and then also your RLN. The superior laryngeal nerve stimulation is going to cause the cricothyroid muscle to tense. Remember the cricothyroid is going to tense the vocal cords. The recurrent laryngeal nerve is going to stimulate your thyroarytenoid and your lateral cricoarytenoid which will also cause adduction of the vocal cords. So you get the sense here that when this efferent signal is going out, you're going to have those cords slam shut, but it should be noted that this isn't an all or nothing phenomenon. It's not like they're going to all contract completely or none at all. So depending on the severity of the contraction of the laryngeal muscles, you can either have a partial or a full airway obstruction. If the intrinsic laryngeal muscles are involved, the vocal cords are going to be adducted, and this will result in a partial airway obstruction. If the extrinsic laryngeal muscles contract, that will cause the false vocal cords and the supraglottic soft tissue to uh, contract, and that will cause a complete airway obstruction. So there's a little bit of a difference there. Our our management is going to be much the same, but it's important to know that there there are different levels of the laryngospasm. 
So next, let's talk about the causes of a laryngospasm and what are the things that are going to bring this more likely to happen. And one of the things that we always first think of is a laryngospasm typically occurs during extubation. This is probably the most common part during the anesthetic that you're going to see a laryngospasm occur. And this is mainly because the endotracheal tube is going to be removed at a part where the patient is coming off of their anesthetic and they're still at this partial level of anesthesia, which is what is referred to as stage two. And it's an impartial depth where we're not completely deep enough on our anesthetic to blunt these reflexes in the airway, but we're also not awake enough for the patient to to be alert, uh, not having any type of of reflex or agitation that's going to occur when we manipulate this endotracheal tube from their larynx. And so for this reason, most people have their numbers in mind of what they want the expired level of bottle anesthetic to be before they, they take out the tube. And there's really two approaches here. The first approach is you can extubate a patient deep, deep referring to the fact that you completely have them fully anesthetized with your anesthetic gas, uh, with any type of uh, IV anesthetic you're running, whatever it may be, you have enough anesthesia on board that the patient is breathing spontaneously, but they're not going to have their airway reflexes fully intact enough to cause the spasm when you pull the endotracheal tube out. So that's what a deep extubation is. The other alternative to this is making sure the patient is past stage two. So you've turned off your anesthetic agent, the patient is waking up, and you want to make sure that they're awake enough and they're blowing off any type of volatile anesthetic or the IV anesthetic is wearing off enough where they're not going to have this spasm occur. They're through stage two. And a lot of people will tell you that they have a certain number on their expired volatile anesthetic that they have to see on their machine before they pull the tube. And really, this is not the best indicator of when they're through stage two. Stage two could end up being on somebody when you still have 0.3 of expired sevoflurane, or it could be the same as 0.2 expired sevoflurane on a different patient. And so while you're looking for a rough number when somebody's waking up, you really want them to know that they're through stage two, they're starting to follow commands, their eyes are not disconjugated, they um, are able to maybe do a sustained head lift, squeeze their hands, et cetera. They're trying to lift up and actually pull the tube. When you're starting to have these kind of things occur, you've gotten through stage two. It's now a better point to pull this in a tracheal tube. With that being said, I've still had have patients laryngospasm when I believe I'm through stage two. They're ready for this tube to come out. I deflate my cuff and I pull the in a tracheal tube out and they spasm. And this is because the level of anesthetic is not the only player here, the cause of what can result in a laryngospasm. Some other things include noxious stimuli that are going to be dropped into the pharynx. Most often, this is the secretions that have developed and formed above the endotracheal cuff. And when you deflate the cuff to pull the tube, you start to have these things drop. It could be any blood in the back of the throat, the back of the mouth that drops into the trachea. Any type of these noxious stimuli can cause this reflex to occur. Right. And I think a lot of people have differing ideas about, okay, am I going to do continuous suction while I extubate? Am I going to keep the cuff partially inflated? Or, you know, am I going to use positive pressure as I extubate? And there's some discrepancy about which method is best, 
according to Wang et al. 2022, looked at several of these methods and found that using positive pressure, just about five centimeters of water limits the amount of secretions that are going to leak onto the trachea and therefore cause, uh, like Cole mentioned, that noxious stimuli, which could cause the thoryngospasm. So uh, I think overall, again, there's, there's different methods and there's different things that, you know, may work together as far as limiting factors, but the best, according to the literature, is showing that the positive pressure there on extubation is going to limit the chances of the laryngospasm. Just like Cole mentioned, just because you're limiting the amount of secretions that are going to fall there onto the cords and then cause this reflex. So let's talk about some complications that can develop from a spasm that can occur. So if we leave it untreated, if the spasm occurs and we let the spasm play itself out, we don't do any type of interventions. What will happen is the patient obviously is inadequately ventilating. Um, we often see the patient retracting in, in their neck muscles. They're trying to get in that deep breath, but they're doing so against an obstruction. And as a result, you're going to have this negative pressure pulmonary edema that can happen. It doesn't always happen, but it can. And typically, in my experience, this has often happened in... Uh, young males uh, when I have seen this. And what occurs is the patient tries to inhale against uh, a closed airway. And when they do so, uh, when they, the muscles lining the lung contract, the diaphragm contracts, and it opens up the volume of space in the lungs, it drops the pressure in there. And so typically the air from the atmosphere then from a higher pressure will move into the patient's mouth or nose and down into the lungs to fill that negative pressure space. And so the air can't do that in this case from the atmosphere because you're against a closed obstruction. And as a result, then all that negative pressure will pull fluid across the capillary membrane from that pulmonary capillaries. And you have this fluid brought in and that leads to edema. And then obviously the other complication here is if we're not ventilating appropriately, we can develop hypoxia in the patient and then hypercarbia as well. So your CO2 is going to rise, your oxygen is going to decrease, but thankfully hypoxia and hypercapnia actually help break a spasm. So if you would wait long enough and you get to a severe enough point of hypoxia and hypercapnia, it actually will help break the spasm. But however, we don't really want to wait obviously for a severe enough hypoxia and hypercapnia to develop in order to stop the spasm. It's better for us to intervene before any other complications can develop. Other complications such as uh, cardiac arrhythmias, such as bradycardia, tachycardia, you can even have cardiac arrest. And these are obviously things that we do not want to have happen to the patient. So we don't want to wait for a severe enough drop in oxygen or an increase in CO2 to help us break that spasm. We want to do it prior to that. So what are the things that we can do to try to manage a spasm? Like Cole mentioned, we're not trying to wait for the hypoxia to, uh, you know, write that pathway. So what are, what are the things that we can do in the meantime? And uh, like with other maneuvers that we're doing, usually we're probably doing several of these all at once. Let's break them down one by one here and talk about the different things individually that you can try to do. So uh, like we mentioned, typically you're going to see this right after you have extubated or you've removed uh, some sort of supraglottic airway device. When you're extubating, it's important to make sure that they are an appropriate anesthetic depth prior to pulling the ET tube. We already talked about that previously, but these are things that you can do to get ahead of the game before you needing to uh, remedy the situation. 
once you extubate, you're obviously monitoring to make sure they have adequate ventilation. Sometimes it's helpful to just give a little bit of positive pressure and a jaw lift immediately after extubating, just so you are already basically doing some of these steps in anticipation of a laryngospasm. And you'll know also right away if the patient is not ventilating uh, after you extubate. Usually I'll, I'll try to give the patient one or two breaths or just have my hand on the bag with a little bit of positive pressure. Once they take one or two breaths, they're usually good to go. But, you know, as you extubate, you turn up your APL valve, you pull the tube. It's just basically second nature. You put the mask on, you feel to make sure that they're ventilating. Oftentimes they might, like we mentioned, this isn't an all or nothing pathway. So often they can have like a, just a little bit of a spasm and just that little bit of pressure on the bag will take care of it. You're going to want to look for retractions on the patient's neck. You'll see this very, very pronounced when you're dealing with pediatrics. It's one of the, the best ways to look to make sure that you are ventilating. You're looking at chest rise, but you're also making sure that they're not like Cole mentioned, trying to pull against that closed glottis. If you're not able to ventilate and the patient is having retractions, you're just going to automatically assume you're having a larger spasm and you're going to then start moving on to ways that you can remedy the situation. So if you suspect that it's caused by mucus or blood, Cole already mentioned some of his tricks that he uses while he's extubating. But if this is what you're suspecting, then you're going to want to remove whatever the offending agent is. So you're going to want to uh, go ahead and suction out the patient to try to remove that stimulus. Obviously, you're going to want to make sure that you're giving the patient 100% oxygen. You're going to want to place an oral airway Many times you'll do this before you are extubating. If not, you'll do this kind of simultaneously. Say you're taking on LMA or something. You can just go ahead and, and place that oral airway in. This is simply just to limit the number of options of what could be going wrong. So this is just going to help remove all of that soft tissue out of the way. Maybe that's the only issue causing uh, you to not be able to ventilate. It's also going to allow you to direct all that positive pressure right there to the cords instead of having any issues there with that soft tissue. So make sure you have the oral airway in place while you're giving this positive pressure. If you're still not having success, you can perform a Larson maneuver, which is where you're going to put pressure on the styloid process. This is between the back of the mandible and the mastoid process, and you'll do a jaw lift from there. This is kind of like when I mentioned earlier that you're doing a lot of these things all at the same time. This is something that is probably second nature to you as you're placing the mask on, as you're giving positive pressure. If you're not having success, you're automatically going to be placing some pressure there uh, back behind the mandible. And this is often when you can go to two-handed mask and really get good pressure there behind the mandible to try to break that spasm. Yeah. And the, really the big difference between the Larson maneuver and just simply doing a jaw lift is you're really trying to push on that pressure point. So you're pushing into the head not necessarily up and away. Um, once you do apply that pressure pushing in, then you might as well at that point do that jaw lift up and away. But again, just to reiterate what Tanner was saying, that the biggest thing with this Larson's maneuver is simply putting that that lateral pressure uh, behind that mandible uh, below the earlobe there. And then once you're there, you might as well do the jaw lift as well to give you a better chance at having a successful ventilation from that point on. Uh, the next thing you can do, uh, as Tanner kind of mentioned, you can turn up your APL valve to 10 to 30. This is a, to provide that extra positive pressure to help break that spasm. So again, you want to make sure you have a good seal on your mask that you can hold that pressure, uh, keep your hand on the bag and continuously apply that, that positive pressure there to try to break open that closed glottis, break open that obstruction 
that spasm and get air to ventilate into the lungs. Now, just be aware though, that um, as you know, we think about when we're doing induction and we're masking the patient, any type of pressure over 20 uh, can cause air to be put into the stomach. It can open that lower esophageal sphincter and allow uh, that air to be put into the gastric space. Uh, so just be mindful of that. But in honesty, when I'm trying to break a spasm, I care more about being able to ventilate the patient at this point. But that is something to be mindful of, that you're not going too high on your pressure. If the patient is still spasming at this point, though, uh, typically at this point, I will go ahead and deepen uh, the anesthetic of the patient. So typically, this is why I always have a stick of propofol drawn up that I can use for any type of emergent situations that I may need it. And this would be a perfect example. So you can give around a half a milligram per kilogram uh, IV to these patients. Quick give it in IV, it will anesthetize them just enough that it'll typically help to relax uh, that spasm enough that it'll break. And then they can wake back up from the propofol just by you ventilating for them. And then you can almost reset the wake up, if you will. But if this doesn't work, you can also give succinylcholine, uh, as we know, a very short acting uh, muscle relaxant as a depolarizing muscle relaxant and usually around 0.2 to 2 milligrams per kilogram IV. So that's a wide range. I know a lot of people have different dosing they like to use on this. Uh, you can even give four to five milligrams per kilogram IM. Uh, but the whole point of it here is it's very quick acting uh, within about 30 seconds. And you can give this, it'll hopefully... Uh, with that depolarizing muscle relaxant, it'll cause the contracting muscles there in the airway to relax. You're going to be able to ventilate and that spasm is broken. And then again, kind of reset and wake them back up while you're ventilating for them. Typically only lasts for about three to five minutes, uh, succinylcholine does, and then you'll be able to wake them back up. Once the spasm has broken, uh, continually take that APL valve, slowly decrease it. Um, I always don't just simply turn it straight off. I will keep that positive pressure once it's broken and slowly back off on that positive pressure until they're able to fully take breaths on their own without my assistance. So that's the laryngospasm. Like I said, when I was first in school, I thought this was like the big, bad, horrible event that was going to eventually happen. And the more you practice, the more you probably deal with that every single day to some degree but it's important that we talk through the different mechanisms of preventing it and then also understanding how we can manage it as well. The next thing we wanna talk about is an airway fire. In order for the airway fire to occur in the operating room, you probably remember this from school, but there's three things that you'll need to have present. You need an oxidizer, you need an ignition source, and then finally you need fuel. So an oxidizer, that would be your gases, your oxygen, nitrous oxide, et cetera. Your ignition source, this is going to be lasers, electrosurgical devices, cautery. Uh, for fuel, this is going to be anything that is obviously going to catch fire and cause the fire to continue. So anything like gauze, drapes, even your mask, ET tube, uh, those will all be things that need to uh, be removed. We'll get into that here in a second. But remember, those are going to be the fuel for the airway fire. Just for clarification here, a surgical fire is going to be a little bit different than an airway fire we're discussing. So a surgical fire could be on the inside of the patient or on the patient. An airway fire, as you might imagine, is going to be specifically a fire that is happening inside the patient's airway or within the breathing circuit. So prevention, this is something that, you know, in every time out we, we discuss and is probably something that 
you are aware of, but these are things that we need to just address once more so that you can pay special attention. So from an intellectual standpoint, the best way to prevent a fire is to limit the three components that you need to make a fire. That makes total sense. So if those are the three things that you need to actually cause a fire, well, how can we, how can we manage that or limit those? So for example, if the surgeon is going to use a laser around the airway, then you're going to want to try to limit the fuel. How can you do that? You can use a laser resistant ET cuff that is not made of flammable material. So now you've eliminated one of those components. You can also decrease your oxygen content. So that would be decreasing your oxidizer portion of the three things that are needed for the fire. When an ignition source is being used around the airway, like I just mentioned, you're going to want to decrease your FiO2 to less than 30% if possible. This is going to require communication with the surgeon, and we all know how that goes. Sometimes that is more difficult than other times, but really it's it's a matter of um, patient safety. And I had somebody when I was in school that was telling me, you know, it doesn't matter if the oxygen content is going to be 50%, 30%, if there is a ignition source and it's not a secured airway and it's getting around that tube or getting around that cuff, then you're going to have a uh, airway fire. And And I sort of understand where they're coming from, but if we think about the three things that are needed, the oxidizer, the ignition source, and the fuel, our efforts, the best we can do is to try to limit those things, to try to limit the chances of one of those things, you know, starting the airway fire. So it's really is important that if you can reduce the FiO2, especially less than 30%, it really decreases the chances of whatever type of device they're using that would be uh, the ignition source would decrease the chances that it's going to actually cause a fire. Yeah. To, to go off of what, um, that preceptor was telling you, I was reading the other day in Barish's eighth edition of his clinical anesthesia textbook, uh, that similarly to that, where the FiO2 doesn't necessarily prevent the fire from occurring. It just uh, extended the length of time that the three things had to be present before the fire would start. Uh, meaning that if your FiO2 is hundred percent, uh, it would start in a lot less time. You would have a fire occur in a lot less time when all three of those things are present together, the oxidizer, the ignition source, and the fuel. Whereas if you just had room air, 21% oxygen, it would take a lot longer of all those three things present together before the fire would occur. Um, So we're not saying that if you're below 30%, it's hands down not going to cause a fire, Um, but it drastically reduces the risk of that fire occurring because it takes more time of all three of those things being present together for the fire to start. Okay, so what happens if an airway fire actually develops? You'll stop the procedure immediately. If the patient has an ET tube, you're going to extubate immediately. You do not want to use positive pressure. This is, uh, in essence, creating a blowtorch. If you have oxygen going through the ET tube, then you give positive pressure. So that would be um, poor form, as it were, to do in the operating room. Typically, the surgeon who is working next to or in the airway should be able to pull the tube out while you turn off the flow of gases. This will get rid of the oxidizer, and then it should stop the airway fire almost immediately now that you've removed the oxidizer, and then you've also removed the fuel as well. Next, you're going to want to remove all the burning materials from the airway and any other flammable material around the patient's head. 
So again, we're just trying to remove the fuel and try to limit the things that could contribute to this airway fire. You're going to pour saline or water into the patient's airway. Once the fire is extinguished, you're going to ventilate the patient via mask ventilation. You can attempt to use only room air unless the patient would need a higher FiO2. Again, this is just trying to limit the things that would contribute to an airway fire. So you're trying to limit the amount of uh, oxidizer that would be present there. So room air would actually be best. You want to inspect the ET tube if you have one in place to determine if any of the fragments are left in the airway. If this would be the case, then you would want to do a bronchoscopy, usually a rigid bronchoscopy to look for the fragments and assess for any further injury. Depending on the condition of the patient, at this point, you will probably need to reintubate if you are in the middle of a case and you still have muscle relaxant on board or you have them deep enough when they're not ventilating on their own. And then you'll then determine next steps moving forward. Often when you look at airway fire, you think, okay, well, like, what are my initial steps that I'm going to take? And this is where this is going to be a, a coordination of services. Most likely, like I said, the surgeon will probably be the one that is you know, working in the airway. They'll probably be the ones that actually move the ET tube. If that's the case, then you're going to want to work together where you're turning off the gases while they're removing the ET tube. So the timing between turning off the gas, removing the uh, ET tube, those are all going to be happening simultaneously. It's just important that steps are not missed. If you're working in concert with other people, that there's clear communication and there's nothing that's missed since you are all kind of working on this together. But, uh, you know, we're not the only ones that are going to be trained in an airway fire. You're going to have the other OR personnel that are also going to know what to do there, but you're going to be the one that's responsible for the airway. So this is where clear communication is important. Next steps, you know, evaluating what needs to be done next, as far as we need to reintubate, uh, once we reintubate, you know, what are the next steps as far as getting the patients safely to recovery? That is going to be uh, where you need just clear communication with the staff so that everybody's on the same page. All right. So next, we want to talk about a recurrent laryngeal nerve damage and what is going to be the significance of that. So if you recall back from our airway assessment, anatomy and equipment episode, uh, we went through the different uh, sensory and motor components of the airway. A uh, quick review here for the parts that we're going to talk about right now. So when you get to the hypopharynx and the larynx, the vagus nerve is going to branch into both the superior laryngeal and the recurrent laryngeal nerves. The superior laryngeal nerve will then split further into the external and the internal branches. The external branch contains no sensory innervation, but the internal branch will sense the posterior side of the epiglottis up into the vocal cords. Once you get to the vocal cords, the recurrent laryngeal nerve provides innervation to the rest of the larynx and the trachea below the level of the vocal cords. So the recurrent laryngeal nerve comes off from the vagus nerve. It goes down uh, under the subclavian artery, and then it comes back up to innervate the larynx. The left and the right uh, recurrent laryngeal nerves are going to be asymmetric because the left side not only has to go under the subclavian artery, but it also has to go typically around the aortic arch. Again, you're going to have some variation from patient to patient, but this is the typical anatomy that you would see. And as we talked about before, the superior laryngeal nerve, uh, the external division is going to have a motor innervation. So remember, the internal division has no motor innervation at all. It just has a sensory. And then this external division is going to innervate the cricothyroid muscle. And this is important because it's going to elongate the vocal cords and it's going to tense the vocal cords. We'll get to why that's important here in a second. 
all the other muscles in the larynx are going to be motor innervated by the recurrent laryngeal nerve. So this would be your vocalis muscles that cause shortening of the vocal cords, posterior cricoretinoids, uh, abduct the vocal cords, whereas the lateral cricoretinoids will adduct the vocal cords. The thyroretinoid muscle both adducts and shortens the vocal cords, etc. Uh, the biggest thing here is, in summary, the recurrent laryngeal nerve innervates all the intrinsic muscles of the larynx except for the cricothyroid muscle. So if we have an injury or if there's trauma to the recurrent laryngeal nerves, it is going to result in a vocal cord dysfunction, depending on if we have unilateral or bilateral injury. So if there is a unilateral injury to the recurrent laryngeal nerve, the main symptom that you'll see typically is hoarseness, along with a reduced ability to prevent or protect against aspiration from occurring. And we're going to talk about aspiration here in just a few minutes. Uh, but for the time being, just know that hoarseness is your main symptom. And then you also are having an increased likelihood of having aspiration uh, occur. If any type of gastric contents get up into the pharynx, you're not going to be able to protect as well from it dropping down into the lungs. And if you have a bilateral injury, this is going to be very bad because both the recurrent laryngeal nerves are going to be damaged here. And if this is the case, all of the intrinsic muscles in the larynx are going to be unable to contract except for the cricothyroid muscle, which we just talked about is innervated by the external branch of the superior laryngeal nerve. So as a result, this is going to cause unopposed adduction of the vocal cords from that cricothyroid muscle. And it's going to cause a complete airway obstruction along with aphonia and dyspnea. So we have no counteracting muscles from the intrinsic muscles. We just have the cricothyroid muscle contracting and we don't have anything else that the recurrent laryngeal nerve can stimulate. So we have this closure, this potentially complete closure of the airway. So what are the kind of causes of this? So typically the main type of surgery that you would see this develop in, it's going to be a thyroid surgery or some other type of neck surgery, maybe a parathyroid surgery, et cetera. Uh, it's one of the leading surgical procedures that we see an injury to the recurrent laryngeal nerve. However, if you do see an injury, typically it's unilateral. Uh, typically the surgeon isn't going to damage both of uh, the recurrent laryngeal nerves. Not saying that has not happened before, uh, but typically it is a unilateral injury that occurs. So how do we prevent this? Typically during thyroid or other neck procedures, the surgeon will request a nerve integrity monitoring ET tube, uh, otherwise known as a NIM tube. This will alarm when the recurrent laryngeal nerve is stimulated, and this will obviously notify the surgeon that they're close to the nerve. Sometimes this is a, you know, a bear to get situated properly. And this is something that now in my practice, I'll just do with a glide scope when I'm placing a NIM tube, simply so that we are all on the same page from the beginning, understanding that the tube is in the correct spot. This is where sometimes depending on which surgeon you're working with, if they have not, you know, uh, verified placement with you and say the, you know, the alarm is, is going off all the time. They'll just say, oh, it's, it's, you know, mispositioned or it's, it's not reading. Right. So I think it's very important to be on the same page from the very beginning that everybody has a clear understanding of where the tube is placed so that when the alarm is going off more frequently, you know, you really are on the same page regarding that this is a, a, a true reading and that they should redirect or they are, you know, in a very touchy spot where they need to be very careful. 
if bilateral injury would occur and the patient has complete obstruction of the vocal cords, you will need to keep a secured airway, or if you don't have a secure airway, you'll need to place one. Depending on the severity of the obstruction, you may or may not be able to ventilate or pass the ED tube through the cords. This is where you'll need to refer to your difficult airway session. We talked about that uh, on the last discussion about the invasive airway techniques and then the difficult airway management. This is a situation where you could be very, very time sensitive. Obviously, if you have the cords that are, are slammed shut, you're not able to ventilate and you're not able to place a tube through. Now we need to look at different mechanisms. So like I said, make sure you check out our last episode and where we walk through the specific difficult airway algorithm so that you know what would be next as far as achieving an airway, whether you're going to do a cricothyrotomy or you're going to do jet ventilation, you know, whatever you decide to do on the algorithm, it's just important that you have that kind of in the back of your mind. I think oftentimes you're doing like a thyroid or a parathyroid, you know, you just think, you know, this is maybe a run of the mill case. I think we can often do that about every case, but it's just so imperative that we are vigilant and we're thinking about the things that could happen, you know, extubating on that case and then having to run through your difficult airway algorithm is not probably on your mind for every single case, but it's something that could very easily happen. The last thing that we want to talk about on this episode is pulmonary aspiration. And this will occur when we have gastric contents that'll move up from the stomach and into the pharynx and then drop from the pharynx down into the lungs. This can cause chemical injury to the lining of the respiratory tract and can also cause an inflammatory mediator release in the airway and in the lungs. The result is damage to the lining of the respiratory tract. Then you can have edema from the capillaries that develops. Ultimately, if you have these type 2 alveolar pneumocytes that are damaged, you can have hypoxia develop. Uh, this would be a little bit later stage complication of the aspiration, but it's important to you know think through all the things that could happen potentially down the line. Why does this happen during anesthesia? Well, we already talked about this back when we were talking about the laryngeal spasm, but your laryngeal reflexes are going to be inhibited, which would allow the aspirate fluid to fall into the lungs. So this would obviously be where you have a patient that is too deep or uh, you have enough drugs on board where these reflexes are altered, they're not going to prevent the aspirate from going down to the lungs. So how can we prevent or limit aspiration from occurring? Uh, we talked about and touched on this earlier, the idea that if you're doing anything more than 20 on your positive pressure, uh, 20 centimeters of water uh, during your mass ventilation, that this could uh, open up the lower esophageal sphincter and cause any insufflation of that gastric area. And so we really want to limit our peak pressures to less than 20 during a mass ventilation. And even if you have a LMA or anything like that, uh, we really try to keep it below 20 um, over this amount, again, would increase the risk of air getting into the stomach. Again, this should be for every case, but we should follow appropriate MPO guidelines. Uh, this again, just a quick review here. Uh, Typically, it's fatty food should be greater than eight hours prior to your surgery, uh, light meals about six hours, non-human milk about six hours, infant formula about six hours, uh, breast milk four hours, and clear liquids about two hours. We often say in practice that cricoid pressure helps prevent gastric aspiration. This is actually something that I've heard a lot of both sides of this, and I think it's something that the majority of people typically always 
uh, do if you're going to have a patient that's at risk for aspiration and you're going to be doing a rapid sequence induction and you want to li limit the risk of them aspirating, it's very standard to go ahead and do cricoid pressure. However, the primary studies of cricoid pressure uh, were really performed on cadavers and they have been unable to be reproduced significantly enough to prove that cricoid pressure does help and prevent this. It really has now been shown uh, that since the esophagus is in the majority of people, not directly behind the trachea, that cricoid pressure actually causes the esophagus to move lateral to the trachea rather than just simply compressing the trachea down onto the esophagus and closing the esophagus. So you're not really in the majority of people closing and uh, constricting that esophagus to limit things from coming up. Additionally, cricoid pressure can cause the airway to either be compressed, compressed too much or moved to the lateral side where it, it limits the, the view of somebody that's doing the direct laryngoscopy um, or even the glide scope. Um, so in reality, the cricoid pressure is something that I feel like a lot of CRNAs still do uh, just out of habit. It's the, the thing that they learned. Um, they continue to do that with every case, um, but it's not necessarily proven to be effective at reducing the risk for pulmonary aspiration. The last thing that you can do to manage this, just from a medication side of things, you can give non-particulate antacids such as sodium citrate 10 to 20 minutes before induction to raise the gastric pH. This isn't going to prevent aspiration. This is simply going to neutralize the gastric contents so that if they were to aspirate, they wouldn't be quite as caustic to the airway lining. You can give proton pump inhibitors such as omeprazole. Uh, that can be given the night before anesthesia to reduce the amount of acid production. Again, this is going to have a similar effect as far as raising the gastric pH. You can give a histamine blocking agent such as Pepsid and give that about an hour before surgery to reduce the amount of acid production. You can give a gastroprokinetic agent such as Reglan 20 to 30 minutes before induction of anesthesia. Uh, this is just going to increase your gastric emptying. It's important that we just mentioned here that of the reported aspiration cases under anesthesia, less than half have resulted in pneumonia. Uh, pneumonia could occur based on the type of aspirate there is. So if it's particulate, non-particulate, if it's acidic, patient comorbidities, the amount of aspirate, those are all going to be factors that are going to play into uh, the risk of developing into pneumonia. It's important that we talk through each of these different complications that can occur while we're managing an airway. Like Cole mentioned at the beginning, this is not by far a comprehensive list of all the complications that can occur, but these are ones that can occur at a more frequent basis and are things that we need to make sure that we are on guard to protect against. And then should they happen, things that we should know how to manage. Hopefully this has been helpful to have you review and to learn these concepts so that we can effectively care for our patients' airways. Mm -hmm.